0: When I was young, Charles Schultz had a daily comic strip entitled Peanuts. Anybody remember Peanuts? Charlie Brown and the gang? Yeah. It turned into a famous cartoon, which was usually called Charlie Brown and This, you know, maybe Charlie Brown Christmas or Charlie Brown and the Great Pumpkin or something like that. One of Charlie's friends in that comic strip was Linus. Linus was the little guy with the blanket, okay? His name was Linus Van Pelt if you didn't know the last name. And Linus had a sister named Lucy. Lucy used to terrorize the boys. She was just ornery. This particular comic strip opened with a typical Saturday morning TV time at the Van Pelt household where Lucy and Linus were sitting in front of a television set when Lucy says to Linus, Go get me a glass of water. Linus looks surprised. Why should I do anything for you? You never do anything for me. Well, on your 75th birthday, Lucy promised, I'll bake you a cake. Linus got up and headed to the kitchen and said, Life is more pleasant when you have something to look forward to. (laughs) This morning, I want to talk about our passage, and it really is about hope. It's about what Craig started to talk about here, a little bit what was covered last week, but really, literally, hope defined as something that you look forward to. Oddly enough, before we look forward, we need to take just a little trip to look back in order to set the stage. So if you turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 1 through 5. I want to read that passage, but then I want to give a little background to it as well. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read out of the NIV this morning. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you this morning that you are the God of all hope and that our hope rests firmly in you. And it's so important, Father, that we ground our hope in you because our hope is no better than the person that we hope in, the object of our hope, and that's you. Father, open our eyes, open our ears, mostly open our heart this morning to receive the hope that you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. There is a therefore at the beginning of this passage. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. Well, in any time there's a therefore, of course you have always have to ask the question, what is the therefore? Therefore. Yeah, there you go. Some of you got that. This therefore exists because of the preceding passage in which Paul discusses the fact that the faith that prompted Abraham to move in obedience to God's plan in establishing the Jewish nation is the same faith that we move in when we believe that God is able to do all that he says that he will do for us. Specifically, that God was able to raise raise Jesus from the dead, and because he's able to do that, he's applied Jesus' righteousness to our lives so that we can stand before God as justified. Now, what is justified? Well, in the Greek, it's diakonos, It basically means this. It's a legal term that means acquittal. It means to be acquitted. For Christ's sake, you are acquitted. It's a term that means not guilty. We have been found literally acquitted, not guilty, based on our faith in God who is able to save us. Romans 4.22, the passage just before ours, says this. This is why it was credited to Abraham... Him, Abraham, as righteousness, the words it was accredited to him were written not for him alone, but for also us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Our not guilty status before God, our justification, is based upon that faith, the faith that believes that God accredits righteousness to us because of Jesus Therefore, okay, the therefore, why is the therefore, therefore? Therefore, since we have been justified by Jesus, there's a result. In our passage, it says we have peace with God through Christ. Folks, I know I've said this before. It bears repeating. Peace is not the absence of trouble, strife, or any other type of tribulation in your life. Peace is actually a person. Specifically, it is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. As Christians, we should be incredibly peaceful, tranquil, calm people. Was that your week? Oh, okay. So your week was like mine. Hmm. You know, it's not because our circumstances are trouble-free, that we should be people of peace. It's because we should be able to be peaceful in the midst of any storm. Last week, Jan and I were down in Southern California at Charlie Youngkin's memorial service. It was a tough weekend, as you you might guess or expect. Not so much because of the service that we attended down there, but more because of the atmosphere of being with people that I find difficult to entrust myself to. People that hurt me in ways that left scars, emotional scars. Have I forgiven them? Yes, absolutely. Uh, But that doesn't mean that I'm going to trust them not to hurt me again. Does that make sense? Okay. I knew before we went that I would be walking into an atmosphere, a storm, that had potential to do harm to me again. And I was not wrong. But I marvel at God's grace upon our lives upon my life, as I stood conversing with people that had kicked me to the curb a decade ago in ministry terms, as I shook hands with somebody who told people literally that I was unfit for ministry, I still had a sense of peace, a sense of, if God be for me, eh, who can really be against me? That sense of peace isn't so much a feeling, folks, as it is a knowing. It didn't feel good all the time to be there, but I knew I was okay and I could stay peaceful because of what I knew. It's not about what I know, really, so much as it is about who I know, the Prince of Peace. I want to take a a minute and do a little bunny trail here on this entrusting things, because I don't want you to misunderstand what I was talking about. Perhaps you saw the advertisement this morning, if you were here uh, at the beginning of the service, for our New Life Facebook page. If you didn't, and you're a member of Facebook page, go to your Facebook page, and I guess it's liking, is that what they call it? Liking. I'm not a Facebook person. Amateur, I'm not even close to an amateur. (laughs) It's new life. It's new life of Santa Maria that you need to like. Oh, it's up? Oh, thank you so much. That solves a lot of my problems. Now, if you've been watching or following uh, our Facebook page, then you know what I mean by entrusting yourselves to others. But if you didn't get a chance to read it, I want to share it with you. Janet uh, is doing daily posts on our page, and this is what she wrote about the subject of entrusting. I think it's brilliant, but then I always think my wife is brilliant. She says, who are you entrusted to? In John chapter 2, Jesus is doing miracles at the Passover feast. The scripture says that many saw his signs and believed in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them. Was he putting up walls or becoming cynical? We know this can't be because Jesus holds nothing back from you and me. I think it had everything to do with who he entrusted himself to. He did not look to man for personal value or affirmation of his ministry. He entrusted those things to God, and so must we. The only way to truly be free to love others is to entrust ourselves completely to God. When we do that we won't succumb to the opinions of man and we will walk in confidence knowing who we are in Christ. Good stuff, huh? Listen, to walk in peace is to know who you're entrusted to. If you entrust yourself to the opinions of others, I promise you, peace will be fleeting. If you entrust yourself to the Prince of Peace if you play to an audience of one, that one being God, then no matter the storm you walk into, you will walk in peace. Go the other way and entrust yourself to people. You won't need to walk into a storm. You'll carry your storm with you. It'll follow you around like a little dark cloud. Again, I refer to peanuts, you know, pig pen, the little dark cloud that followed him around. That's what it'll look like. We have a prince of peace to entrust ourselves to so that walking in the storm is not something that can rob us of our rest, our peace, our calm. The next part of this passage I find even more intriguing than just the the peace thing, which is, to me, so needed in our, our world today because our world is out of control in many ways and in many things. But because it is, we need something that's called hope as well. This next part, this next line, I find fascinating. It says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Does that make sense to you? And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that really mean? I want to break it down so that it makes sense, but I want to do it by going at it from last to first. I want to go at the sentence backwards, okay? That means that the last part, which is the glory of God, I I want to cover that first. What is that? Well, glory itself is the praise or adoration typically conferred upon someone who has done something important, something noteworthy, something admirable. So the glory of God is our praise for him for what he has done. But even more than that, it's praise for who he is and not just all that he's done. What has he done? When we were at the funeral, uh, they shared John 3.16. In a way, I've heard it shared many times before. I don't think I've ever shared it actually here. It wasn't something new. Uh, it was p- actually part of the, the end of Charlie's last sermon. Uh, he preached, I think it was January 26th, and he died a few weeks later. And it was his last time in the pulpit, and he was preaching on heaven. He was preaching on... eternity, eternal life, and he shared John 3.16 in this sort of a paraphrase amplified version of John 3.16. Everybody know John 3.16? For God so loved the world, you can say it with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here's what it sounds like with that paraphrase amplified version. God, the greatest lover, so loved, the greatest degree, the world, the greatest number, that he gave, the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest invitation, believeth, the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest person, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference. Have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. Isn't that cool? That is our God. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 tells us that our God is love. God, the greatest lover. That's who he is. What did he do? That's the rest of it. He so loved the greatest degree, the world the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest invitation believeth the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest person, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. It's about God the person, the greatest lover, and what he did for us through Jesus, that greatest gift, our redemption being, folks, his glory. In the middle of that, that passage, we have this word hope. Hope is expectation. Uh, there's really no better way to define hope than to say it is expectation. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Hope is a great expectation of things to come, things not yet realized. It is future-oriented. Therefore, the hope of the glory of God is Paul casting the glory of God into our future. Now, Paul might be talking about the future aspect of our redemption when Christ returns and we are all caught up to be with the Lord that coming day when we shall be like him and we will be with him. Or he may be talking about the glory that comes through God through the future of the church itself as more and more people are brought into a saving relationship with Jesus, which is also, by the way, to the and the glory of God. I don't know if that makes sense. It is to the glory of God that people are saved, and it is the glory of God that people are saved. Either way, it's future-oriented. It's something to expect. It's a great hope. It carries with it the mindset of pressing forward toward the good thing that is coming. Paul says this, it in Philippians chapter three, he says it this way. He says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in death, so that somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind And straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You get the future aspect of that? Paul is going after all that Christ died to give him. And we shouldn't settle for anything less than all that Jesus died to provide us. That includes hope and joy and rest, and peace. We serve a future, present God. We're not meant to live in the past, whether it be past successes or past failures. We're meant to live in expectation of the good that is coming. Okay, the last part here, which is the first part of the verse, right? First is that we rejoice. Literally, to rejoice means to have joy again. Rejoice. Even more correctly, to have joy again, and again, and again, and again, continually. Folks, we were made for joy. Billy Sunday said, if you have no joy, there's a leak in your Christianity. Dwight L. Moody expressed it really well. He said, joy flows right on through trouble. Joy flows on through the dark. Joy flows in the night as well as in the day. Joy flows all through persecution and opposition. It is an increasing fountain bubbling up in the heart, a secret spring the world can't see and doesn't know anything about. The Lord gives his people perpetual joy when we walk in obedience in him. So where does all that leave us with this little piece of our passage and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of god Well laid out front to back okay reading it correctly and sort of paraphrasing it for you i would say it leads us right to this place we have continual ongoing joy looking forward to praising and adoring god for who he is and what he has done. That's paraphrased by Scott, okay? Listen, this whole thing, this whole thing is tied together. Walking in peace, no matter our circumstances, is part of the grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, that are available to us as we experience, as we rejoice and praise God for who he is and what he's done for us. It's all one package. It's all tied together. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. It gets even better. There's a reward factored into all of this as well. Look at verse 3 with me. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. There's that word again, rejoice, having continually Continual joy, joy all over and over again in the midst of the storm, in the midst of suffering. Does that mean I give thanks for the terrible things that happened to me in this fallen, broken world? Stumped you. (laughs) Well, let me give you perspective on that. Charlie left behind a widow, a great friend of ours as well, Elaine. That would be like our friend Elaine having joy over Charlie dying so that she can be a widow. Does that make sense? Kind of weird, huh? Listen, the verse says that we are to rejoice in our sufferings, not for our sufferings. Does that make sense? Suffering suffering. It ain't fun, okay? Trials and tribulations, we're not to rejoice in those things, or for those things, but we're supposed to rejoice in those things. Too many believers give God thanks for the calamity in their lives as though he did it to them just to draw them closer to him. Folks, God isn't like that. Remember rule number one? Rule number one, if you weren't here when we did rule number one, you you have to get this. Because if you don't get this, everything else kind of falls apart in the theology that Jesus came to give us. Rule number one is God is good. Satan is bad. Don't get the two confused. Don't be giving God credit for the things that Satan does. We do that way too often in Christianity. I don't really understand that, oh yeah, God gave me cancer so that I'd draw closer to him. Really? You know, as as a father, I wouldn't wouldn't give my child a terminal disease so I could get closer to them. I wouldn't be a very good father. I'd be a cruddy father. Man, so why would we blame God or, or say that God would do that? He's a perfect father. In fact, Luke chapter 11 tells us that if you, being sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit. God's got good things planned for us. He wants to give us who? Himself. The best gift. Remember the passage? Okay. God wants to give us the best so that we can walk in all of that peace, all of that joy. If it's good, folks, it's from God. If it's bad, it's from the enemy. So, why would I rejoice in suffering? Okay, we kind of established I'm not rejoicing for the suffering that's in my life, but I'm going to rejoice in the suffering. Why would I do that? Because even though the enemy loves to wreak havoc on this world because he delights in our suffering, we rejoice because God delights in our rescue. That's why he's a God of redeeming love. God will take the attacks of the enemy and he will use them for our good. It's not that the, the problem is good, but God will make things good for us. Romans 8.28, we will get to that in about, I don't know, a couple months. <laughs> Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. If the enemy keeps knocking you down, folks, and God keeps picking you up, proving that he is, that is in you is greater than he that is in the world, then you win, right? Okay, you're not sure about that. Folks, not only do you win, but every time you stand up, you defeat the enemy's plan for your life. I think sometimes the best reason to rejoice in getting back up and moving forward is knowing the damage that you do to the enemy. I kinda like that part. You wanna be more than a conqueror? Learn to rejoice in the midst of the storms of your life. Your finances tight right now? Rejoice in what you do have and rejoice in what's coming. Does that sound stupid? Well, let me ask you this. How smart is worry? Did worry ever put a dollar in your bank account? No, of course not. That would be foolish. So why not learn to rejoice instead of worry? Have continuing joy as you wait on the provision of God for your life. Are you sick? Are you struggling? with some area of health in your life, rejoice. God is a healing God. Listen, I know that not everybody that we pray for gets healed. Do I understand that? No. I, honestly, I don't. But that doesn't change who God is. So I learn to rejoice even when I don't see immediate healing. I learn to rejoice when I stand up here on a Sunday morning and my arthritis makes it Hard to even play my guitar. But I play anyway. I play and I rejoice. And you know what? When he heals me, when he heals Cindy back there, we're going to have a testimony, aren't we? If he doesn't heal me, then you know what? I intend to show up at the gates of heaven singing just the same. Do you understand that? We will be healed either here or there, we will be healed. There is ultimate healing in heaven. I get a new body, hopefully one that doesn't have to struggle with gaining weight. Because you know what? There's a marriage feast of the lamb and I'm going to pack it in. I'm going to eat all the things that I want to eat. Folks, I know that some of these struggles, some of the storms of your life are not easy. I get that, I understand. We all go through them. We just go through them in different ways. Learn to rejoice so that you can walk through them in peace. Learn to rejoice so that you can walk through them in rest because that is what God gave you a Holy Spirit to help you do. The rest of that verse there says, Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. If I do suffer, folks, if you do get knocked down by the enemy and you don't give up, you know what? You cultivate something called perseverance. You cultivate a never-give-up determination to taste and see that the Lord is good. You believe and live in the same hope that King David did who wrote Psalm 27, verse 13 that says, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Do you know the circumstances for that psalm? David wrote that song in the midst of grieving over the death of his son, Absalom. David was hurting, but he would not let go of the goodness of God. He persevered. Was David perfect? No, no more than you or I. But David didn't give up. He learned. He grew. You know, David is the only person that the Bible declares to be a man after God's own heart. You see, for all of his faults, David kept going. He kept getting back up every time he got knocked down. He didn't bail on God. Perseverance developed character, and character developed hope. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There's a confidence that he has in the goodness of God. Graham Cook says, We are called to hold out for our reward from God, but confidence and endurance must live together within us in order to obtain that reward. Confidence must become our great ally, endurance must be our best friend. We are called to be patiently confident and confidently patient. Why? This verse says because hope doesn't disappoint. Verse five, hope does not not disappoint us because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. This patient perseverance through the trials and tribulations of this fallen world is not about us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, folks when we get knocked down by the enemy. It's about cooperating with the Holy Spirit within you to get back up and to get moving again in God's plan no matter how many times we get knocked down, even when we knock ourselves out of the race. It's about knowing that God has amazing things waiting for us as we move forward in his desire for us, which his desire for us is to make us into the image of his son. It is about Knowing that getting knocked down is not an obstacle, it's an opportunity. An opportunity to lean into the gentle but powerful hands of God's grace. The hands that will not because they cannot let you down. It's about knowing that every trial that comes our way is an opportunity for promotion in the kingdom of God. You were not designed to be a victim. You were designed to be a victor. Ask yourself, are you allowing God to live up to his potential in you? I know that sounds like a strange thing, but we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit who's been placed within us to grow into the image of Christ. Are you allowing God to become the potential he means to become in you? That verse says, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Do you get what that's saying? Hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love in us by his Holy Spirit. God's intent is to fill you to overflowing with the reality of his passion for you. John 3.16, yet again. For God so loved you, not just the world, you, that he gave his only begotten son, not just whosoever, but that you would not perish, but have everlasting life. There is a great hope that's contained within this passage. Next week, I'm going to talk about that great hope a little bit more as we move into uh, verses six through eight where God declares that he demonstrates his love for us by this, that Jesus Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. There is this great hope in a God of incredible passion who loves us so much that even when we hated him, even when we didn't have any idea of what it meant to love him, he loved us. And he desired to have a personal, ongoing, intimate, passionate relationship with each and every one of us. This week, as you walk through some of the storms of your life, because some of you are in storms right now. I get that. I know that. And some of you will find one on Sunday morning to walk into. Uh, Sunday morning. I'm sorry. Monday morning. Walk. Walk. In the knowledge that God has poured his love into you in his Holy Spirit, that he will never ever forsake you, that he will go with you into the storm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because the rod and the staff, they comfort me. God goes with us into the storm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you never leave us alone. Your Holy Spirit goes with us, even into the places we kind of wish He wouldn't go sometimes with us, because we're embarrassed to walk there. But you go anyway, and you go because you love us, and you will not forsake us. Father, remind us when we find ourselves in the storm this week, that we do not walk alone. We walk in strength, we walk in power, we walk in peace, and we walk in rest, because we walk filled with you, filled with your Holy Spirit. Challenge us, Father, to remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.